I was thinking about something the other day. Um, when I was a, a teenager, there was this thing called uh, mail-in rebates that was really big. Like almost everywhere would do this thing called a mail-in rebate. Who, who knows what that is? A mail-in rebate. So it could be, yeah, it could be anything, right? You buy a cereal box, and then if, if you win a prize, you you cut out the barcode, you mail it in uh, after 30 days of purchase or something like that, and then and then they're supposed to give you some kind of prize or some kind of refund or a discount, and you know they would do this for cell phones too. If you if you if you start a new plan at Verizon or AT&T, you could do a mail-in rebate, and once you pay full price for the phone, you're supposed to mail something in at a later time, and then they were going to give you like two three hundred dollars back or something like that. I never understood why this was this way as a kid, because I was wondering if you're going to give me the money, if you're going to give me the prize. Why don't you just give it to me right away? Why do you put me through this whole process of having to wait two weeks or sometimes 30 days? And then I have to find some sort of packaging. I need to go to the post office. I need to pay for postage and send you something just to give you, just to, re just to receive something that you could have just given me at the time of purchase. I don't really know the full mechanics around the mail-in rebate, but I know that a lot of these companies that did mail-in rebates made a lot of money by people simply forgetting to turn in and to send in those mail-in rebates. If you had a $300 mail-in rebate, that $300 was rightfully yours, but you needed to do something at a certain time and you need to remember it and go do it in order to claim that mail-in rebate. What's interesting is that as I was thinking about mail-in rebates, it actually is a lot of how God works, how God fulfills his promises to us. The reason why mail-in rebates were difficult, especially for a teenager like me to keep up with, is because I actually had to remember something. I actually had to put something on my calendar, and then I had action steps that I needed to follow, and I wasn't responsible enough to do those things. Today we're asking ourselves the question, how does God fulfill his promises? And in many ways, God fulfills his promises similarly in a way to mail-in rebates. The central idea of today's text is that God fulfills his promises to the faithful through difficult circumstances and in his time. Let me say that one more time. God fulfills his promises to the faithful through difficult circumstances and in his time. We're going to look at today's passage and we'll, we'll examine how God is fulfilling his promises to David in exactly this, this way. The sermon in a sentence for you to take away with you today is this, that you must claim and proclaim the promises of God in Christ. You've got to claim and proclaim the promises of God in Christ. Another interesting thing, the word claim and proclaim are so similar right? Proclaim is literally just the word claim with a, with a prefix in front of it, but the two words, how, how do the meanings relate to each other, right? When we think about claiming, we think about obtaining something that is rightfully ours. And when we talk about proclaiming, we know that we're talking about doing some sort of verbal communication, right? What do these two words have to do with each other? Well, when I looked up the etymology or the history of the word, claim means to ask or demand something by virtue of authority or a right that you have. So it's not just, it's not just entitlement. 
is, is, is that you actually have a right and an authority to ask or demand of something. So when we talk about making a claim, we're, we're accessing the authority or our rights in order to obtain something. The connection between the word claim and proclaim has everything to do with this concept of authority. To proclaim means to make something known, to claim something forward, as the, the prefix pro has to do with going forward, to make something known with authority. And us, as people of God, as Christians, we are recipients to the promise of God. Not only one promise, but primarily one promise. That is eternal life. Reconciliation with God through Christ. We have been given this promise to God, but we must claim that promise. We must respond to that promise in faith. We must surrender to the Lord Jesus. We must repent from our sins in order to claim this promise. But even as we claim this promise, we must also proclaim this promise. And oftentimes when we think about proclaiming, we're thinking about us talking to someone else. But I want to remind us today that the first person you need to proclaim the promises of God to is yourself. Because we so often forget the promises that God has given us. When we look at the passage today, we see God and his relationship with David. Where, where this story takes place in 2 Samuel is that Saul, the first king of Israel, has just been killed. David's heard that Saul has been killed. They just did the whole funeral service. And now David is being anointed as king of Judah. Now Israel has 12 tribes, and Judah was the biggest of those 12 tribes. It was the tribe that David, his ancestry was from. So it's his tribe first that anoints him king of Judah. And then, eventually, David becomes the king of Israel as a whole. But we see that God, first of all, how God fills his promises is that he fulfills his promises to the faithful. The same way you don't get the benefits of a mail-in rebate unless you actually believe that you're going to get the rebate and you actually act in accordance with that belief. Likewise, the promises of God to David, the promises of God throughout the characters of the Bible and even to us today are fulfilled in those who are faithful. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. But we know that not everyone is going to be forgiven of their sins. It's only those who put their faith in Jesus who actually experience the fulfillment of that promise. David, in this, in this part of uh, 2 Samuel, he has been faithfully trusting in God's promise to him for quite some time. We don't know exactly when David was anointed, to be the next king of Israel. But many scholars think that it was probably around the time he was 11 or 12 years old. He was anointed king before he fought Goliath. And when he was about to fight Goliath, everyone said, he's just a boy. Now in today's culture, we're not really sure, sure when boyhood and manhood you know, overlap. 
We, we typically think of men as, you know, 18 or over or maybe 21 or over. But in ancient cultures, by 15, you were considered a man. So David was likely under 15 years old when he fought Goliath. And before that, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king of all Israel. But here we are, and David is 30 years old in today's passage. David is 30 years old. So that's about 18 years after God had made his promise to David that you will be the king of Israel, still hasn't happened. In fact, throughout those 18 years, David went through all kinds of hardship. A lot of that hardship was caused by this first king, Saul, who was jealous of David, who felt threatened by David, who tried to kill him multiple times. David had to flee from his own homeland and live in the land of the, of the enemies of Israel in the Philistines. But at this part of the story, Saul is dead. And David is starting to see the promises of God materialize. 18 or so years after his initial promise to be king of Israel, he's anointed king of Judah. But the real important part of David's faithfulness is not his anointing, but in verse 1, how David seeks the Lord. God fulfills his promises to the faithful. And even though David had been anointed king, even though David had defeated Goliath, even though David had evaded death and won countless battles throughout his young years, David never forgets who his master is. David never forgets who his God is. And even though Saul is dead, he doesn't say, oh, well, here I go. I'm going to stroll up to the palace before he does anything. What does he do? It says he inquires of the Lord. We talked about this quality of David before in contrast to Saul. Saul, his, his, his character was not like this. He didn't ask the Lord or inquire of the Lord. Instead, he just tried to read the circumstances and draw conclusions. God must be opening up something for me instead of actually seeking the Lord in prayer. But here you see David's faithfulness shown in him inquiring of, of the Lord. Should I go up now? You see, David was living in the, in the land of the Philistines this whole time for the past decade or so, running from Saul. Now that Saul was dead, David's asking God, God, is now the time you want me to return to my homeland? And God says, yes. And then David says, to which city should I go? And then God tells him. God fulfills his promise to the faithful. And God is showing that to David once again by communicating with him. Secondly, we see that God fulfills his promises through difficult circumstances. We don't read about it here in today's passage, but pretty much the second half of the entire book of 1 Samuel is about David running for his life because Saul is trying to kill him. Saul directly tried to kill him three times, throwing a spear at him, and David had to dodge it. Saul showed up with armies trying to wipe out David and his men, but God was always faithful to David and preserved his life. David had to live in caves. He had to live in the service of Philistine kings. He did all kinds of things and he went through all kinds of hardships just to stay alive. But throughout this, David never doubted God's faithfulness to him. God fulfills his promises through difficult circumstances. And sometimes God's going God's to give us a promise. And it's not going to look like his promises are coming true. It's not going to look like it. 
And for the past 18 years of David's life, it sure did not look like David was about to be the next king of Israel. It looked like David was going to be wiped out or he was going to be kicked out of the land of Israel. But here you see, David had such perspective on his circumstances caused by Saul that he blesses those that took care of Saul's body in his funeral. In verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and will, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. I want you to think about this. Imagine someone's literally trying to kill you for 18 years. You're running for your life. And finally, in a turn of events, they get killed. I'd be partying. I'd be happy. I'd be celebrating. I wouldn't even care what happened to their funeral, if I'm honest. What gives David this kind of perspective of grace towards someone who had designated him as his enemy, someone who had him on his hit list and tried to kill him multiple times? It's because God made a promise to David. And David knew that Saul wasn't his enemy. David knew that no matter what Saul did, it wasn't going to get in the way of what God had promised him. And it's because David had that kind of faith in God's promises that he was able to love Saul. Even though Saul was the cause of those difficult circumstances, David knew that God was being faithful to him. And through those difficult circumstances, God was actually preparing David to be a different kind of king than Saul was. If you notice, when Saul was anointed king, he, he didn't go through any of the things that David went through. When Saul was anointed king, it was one day he wasn't the king, and the next day he was. But David gets anointed king, and instead of making him the king immediately, God puts him through 18 years of hardship and teaches him how to trust in him in the face of death. See, God was building something in David's life through those difficult circumstances, even though it seemed contrary to his promise. Now, as Christians, sometimes we can do this. God, you promised me that if I come to you, my burden will be light. It doesn't feel light. God, you told me that you will give me peace. It doesn't feel like I have peace. God, you told me I have every heavenly and earthly blessing in Christ Jesus, but my bank account doesn't look like it. God, when are these promises going to come true? How are you being faithful to me now in this low point of the valley? It's in those times we must remember that God doesn't fulfill his promise in spite of difficult circumstances. He purposes those difficult circumstances to shape us. Because God's promise for us isn't just to give us blessings. His promise for us is to make us into new people. His promise is for us to be children of God, to be holy and righteous and blameless before him. God doesn't just want to give you stuff. He wants to make you into someone holy. And he fulfills that promise through hardship. Thirdly, God fulfills his promises in his time. 
As mentioned, David had to wait a long time for Saul to die. Remember, he had his own opportunities to kill Saul, but he spared Saul's life because he trusted in the Lord. Now Saul's dead. Now you think it's the perfect time for David to become king of Israel, but then it's a little anticlimactic because David doesn't become king of Israel in today's passage. He only becomes the king of Judah. He only becomes a king of one of the 12 tribes. And then you hear that even though Saul and Jonathan died in the same battle, there's another son of Saul, Ishbosheth. And Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, takes Ishbosheth and makes him the king of all the other tribes of Israel. See, sometimes we have these expectations for God. God, now's the time, right? Now things are going to start happening. But God's saying, not yet. That's what's happening to David. He's saying, not yet, not quite yet. Ishbosheth rules over Israel for two more years. And it makes you wonder, why did God <laughs> delay by two more years at that point? Why? Like, how significant were those two years? But God was fulfilling His promises through His way and in His perfect time. And if David hadn't learned by now, he was learning once again what it means to wait on the Lord. See, the Bible talks about waiting on the Lord. And when we wait on the Lord, it means we're trusting in Him to provide. We're trusting in Him to fulfill His promises. And waiting on the Lord may feel exhausting. It may feel draining at times. But the Bible tells us that those who wait on the Lord will not be disappointed. In 2 Peter 1 to 3, it tells us that God is not slow to fulfill his promises to us, but he's being patient with us. We think we're being patient with God. And David could have very much felt that way. God, why don't you just make me the king of Israel at this point? Saul's already dead. Now's the time, Lord. But God said, nope, let me make you king of Judah first. There's still more that needs to happen. See, David wasn't waiting on God. God was waiting on David. He was still preparing David for what he had called him to. It was seven more years. So two years after Ishbosheth, seven and a half more years later, David finally becomes the king of Israel. Another thing we must know about God's promises is that the promises that God makes to us as, as people, as to David, as to us now in Christ, the promises aren't just for us, right? We need to remember that. God's not for our glory. He's for his own glory. He's not out for our benefit. He's fulfilling his story. David's promise from the Lord to be king wasn't just for David's sake. It's because God had a bigger plan in mind. God was working something in David, through David, and setting up the throne of Israel to be fulfilled by none other than himself centuries later. See, our vision when we look at the scriptures of how God works can oftentimes be so narrow. 
But you see, God sees the whole picture. God sees beyond the limits of time. And God knew exactly what he was doing when he granted Israel's sinful request for a king. He already knew then that he was going to give them kings. He was going to show them the failure of human kings so that he would fill the throne that he sets up through David. Similarly to the way that God's promise to David to make him king took many years to be fulfilled. God's promise for a Messiah took many, many years. When you think about the slaves in Egypt. They spent 400 years in slavery. Why did God allow them to be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years? Why didn't God just execute the whole exodus and all the plagues and all those things? Why didn't he do those things after a year or after four months? Or why not after four minutes? Why did God wait so long after Israel demanded a king to actually give him the perfect king in King Jesus? Why did God allow the Israelites to be exiled and wiped out of the promised land, taken to a foreign land in Babylon for 70 years, only to be brought back again? When we ask these questions, when we ask these questions, what really comes to mind is that we wouldn't do it this way. We wouldn't do it the way God does it. And this is good news. Isaiah 58, verse 55, verse 8 to 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God fulfills his promises in the best way, and it doesn't make sense to us all the time, but we can trust that it's a good thing that God doesn't do things the way we would do things. And oftentimes God gives us that extended period of time for us to realize the consequences of what happens when we pursue our desires. That's what he does with the nation of Israel. They ask for a king so they could be like all the other nations. And God says, all right, I'm going to give you a king. And even though David was a better king than Saul, David ends up making huge failures and mistakes. He ends up murdering another man to sleep with his wife. All of this was to, for God to reveal to us that he alone is worthy of being our king. And that's why all the promises that we have today aren't directly from the covenant of Moses, but they're from the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came as the perfect king, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, hundreds of years later, born of the Virgin Mary at the right time. At the right time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At the right time, the word lived the perfect life we would live. The word in the flesh died for our sins on the cross. And when we talk about we wouldn't do it God's way, that's, that's the epitome of that. Why would we die for our enemies? Why would we die for our our creation. You know, this isn't just God is, is, is like another human being. No, this is God. He, he created us. He's the author of reality itself. 
And for us as his creation, to have the audacity to defy him, to stand against him, and for God to have the mercy to look upon that and not wipe us out, but say, I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to take on flesh and I'm going to die for you so that you know how much I love you. None of us would do it that way. But God fulfills his promises to the faithful. He fulfills it through hardship, through difficult circumstances, and most notably in Christ. The cross shows us that God can use what looks like a defeat and actually purpose it for the greatest victory of all time. Everyone thought that Jesus had lost in that moment. But on the third day, he rose again to prove to us, as we celebrated last week, that Jesus is undefeatable. This is God's promise for us. Every promise we have is in the victory of Christ. That means it's sealed. That means nothing that the enemy, Satan, demonic forces, wicked men can do, can take the promises of God away from us. Let me remind us of some promises that we have from Jesus Christ as his children of God. John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What gives us the right to claim the promises of Jesus Christ? It's because we've been given the right to be called children of God in Christ. Luke 11, verse 9 to 13. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Because we're children of God, we can claim the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because we are children of God, when we're lacking the Spirit's power in our life, we can ask with assurance, knowing that God will give us abundantly His Spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Come to me, all who, are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the promise of the Lord. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. John 8, verse 31 to 32. Jesus says to the Jews who have believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you believe the promise of Jesus that you are set free from sin? Do you believe the promise that there is no temptation that can overtake you? That you are actually victorious over those things. You just haven't claimed that promise in your life. John 15, 8 to 10. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do you believe the promise that Jesus loves you? Or are you looking for the love of the world? Are you looking to live off of self-love or someone else's love other than the perfect love of God? Mark eleven twenty-two to 25 Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and throw into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. What is this mountain that Jesus is talking about? Well, look at what he talks about next. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone so that your father 
who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Do you forgive that? Do you believe that God will forgive you? Do you believe that God has removed that mountain of sin in your life through the cross? God fulfills his promises to the faithful through difficult circumstances and in his time. We should know this as people of God. As children of God, we must know this. That it's not the difficult circumstances that take away from the credibility of God's promises. It actually is a part of it. God is doing a work through those difficult circumstances the same way he was doing a work through the suffering, the humiliation, the abuse, the injustice, the death and the murder of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is all kinds of difficult circumstances we will face in this life, but none of the promises, and I, I, you know, I could do a whole, we could do a sermon for an entire year on the promises from the Bible, but just the promises that even were mentioned today, none of them can be taken away by these difficult circumstances. God will work through all of them. He will complete and fulfill his promises in his time. God is not like a man that can make plans and make promises to us and then change his mind. No, he is faithful and righteous and he will bring his word to pass. But he fulfills his promises to the faithful, to those who endure in faith to the end, for those who trust in him and his word. The same way David, as an example, trusted in his word. And most notably, the same way Jesus Christ models to us in his relationship to the Father what it looked like to trust in the Father's plan, even as he hung there on the cross. So once again, in conclusion, you must claim and proclaim the promises of God in Christ. You must claim them. You must receive them. You must believe them. Starting with the one that you are a child of God. If you receive and believe in Jesus. Claim that promise of eternal life. If you haven't claimed that promise today, claim that promise today. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. That he rose from the third day. And that anyone who believes in him will be forgiven and have eternal life and receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. And then proclaim the promises of God in Christ. Proclaim them to yourselves. You know, we listen to so many lies every day that we don't ask for. The lies don't stop. They come from our own head. They come from those around us. They come from media. They come on our cell phones. They come on billboards. They come from everywhere. And that's why it's important for us to proclaim the promises of Christ to ourselves and to one another. We need to remember that we have a rebate system going with the Lord. That he has promised us. He has given us the right to claim those promises. Of God in Christ. How does God fulfill his promises? He, pro he fulfills them through difficult circumstances. In his time. And to the faithful. And for us to remain faithful. We got to continue to claim. And proclaim. These promises we have. In Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father we thank you so much. For being a God who initiates with us and makes promises to us. God, you, you have no reason to do those things. We have nothing to offer you. Literally everything belongs to you. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. You can do whatever you want. But Lord, in your absolute freedom, you initiate relationship with us. Us sinners. 
we made ourselves all enemies of you, but Lord, you come and you make promises to us, promises for our good, promises for eternal life, forgiveness, blessing, and peace, and enduring hope. And these promises are given to us in Christ. So Lord, we thank you for the great undeserved privilege we have to be called children of God. Man, what an honor it is that we can be called your children. And God, we thank you that as your children, you have given us claim on the promises of Christ. That the same way you love Jesus, we now are recipients of that perfect love. And Lord, we pray that we would remember your promises and proclaim them to ourselves and to one another to edify each other in our faith, but also to proclaim your promises to the world, to those that don't know you, those that are hungry and in such need of a, of a true promise, a promise that can shine hope and joy and peace into this dark and, and terrifying world that we live in. Lord, we thank you that no matter what, your cross and your resurrection are the guarantee for us that you will fulfill your promises. You are the... You are the only one seated on the supreme throne. We thank you and we worship you today. Help us to go forth in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our selfishness is what prevents us from surrendering to God. But Jesus shows us the perfect example of surrendering to the will of the Father for our sake. He proves himself to be the perfect king that we want. Just as I talked about how like we criticize our governing officials and our leaders when they're corrupted and they're only seeking their own benefit. In contrast to that, we see Jesus who had everything and gave up everything to come, to become one of us, to become mortal so that he could die for us. That he could save us from the enemy that was at hand. The greater enemy than Rome. The greater enemy of sin. In fact, he came to save us from selfishness and all our sins and the consequences. So we need to fight our selfishness. We need to humble ourselves before God. Surrender to Jesus as the only worthy king. And furthermore, we need to sacrifice for others just in Jesus' example. What I read from you in Philippians 2 verse 3, it's Paul, it's Paul talking to the church saying, be like Jesus in this. Not self-seeking. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. I'll close with this. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I know this. I know that selfishness is bad. And I'm not a selfish person. But as I said, I think selfishness is tied to immaturity. And as we mature, not only as adults, but as Christians, it's not something that just goes away the same way you can't say that an adult is never selfish. It's something that we must consciously 
be fighting and replacing with humility and surrender and sacrifice for others. And I have one practical application I'll leave with us. Actually, I'll leave us with two. First of all, if you haven't surrendered to Jesus, fight your selfishness and surrender to him for eternal life. He is the worthy king. He will not disappoint you. And secondly, for those who are in Christ, I want to give you this challenge. Because this is what the Lord convicted me of as I was preparing this message. Even me, even us as Christians, even in our holy actions of prayer and Bible study and church, we can still make it all about us. God, what do you want for me? What do you want me to do? How are you going to bless me? And these are not bad questions. But I think because we've been conditioned and raised in this society that is now dealing with a narcissism epidemic, sometimes we're blind that even the ways we regard God and regard others in the church as we obey God can oftentimes be self-centered. So let's fight our selfishness. Let's ask the Lord, reveal to us, Lord, the ways in which I am living selfishly. Reveal to me, Lord, the ways in which I am putting myself above you and others. Help me to surrender to Jesus and help me to be ready to joyfully sacrifice for others just as Christ sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your selfless, your selfless love, your selfless work, and the selfless legacy you leave to us to follow in your ways, Lord. God, we, we look at the example of Saul and we see how his self-absorption and self-centeredness led him to all kinds of sin and ultimately to his doom. And Lord, we pray that we can learn from his example as we see ourselves fitting into his shoes to varying degrees. God, we know that you came and died for us to free us from the slavery of sin. And Lord, we pray that you would free us from any slavery we have to our own selfishness, that you would also give us the awareness in your spirit to be able to detect our selfishness, our self-absorption. When it comes up, help us to fight it, Lord, and help us to re-surrender to you in those moments as we look to the cross, as we're reminded of the most selfless act of love that was ever done for anyone. Lord, help us. Help us to live out your truth and your love in our worship, in our service to you, in our sacrifice for others. Lord, would you be glorified in all that we do, all that we think, and all that we say, and would you sanctify us and make us pure people. In Jesus' name we pray.